Okay. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see so many faces. And I'm asking everybody to stay on mute as you can during this. And if you've got questions that you want to ask, you can email them to me at emily.grace at bernstein.com or you can uh, text me and you should have my text number in the email that I sent out inviting you to this. So I'm going to get started now and we're going to be recording this to replay it on my stages podcast. So I'll do a brief introduction and then uh, turn it over to Roosevelt. So hello, I'm Emily Grace and welcome to this live recording of stages podcast. Having helped families prioritize what makes money meaningful for them and then invest for that purpose for close to 20 years now. I've seen people through countless markets and life events. Today, I'm coming to you from Maine and wanna start by thanking everyone for their outpouring of love and support during this time. I'm thinking of all of you because as we've been speaking, it's clear that everybody's fighting their own battles right now and trying to, to make it through. And in particular, I'm really thankful for my brother who's a paramedic in New York City and to all the others who are putting themselves on the, on the front line these days. Now, with the market's reaction to COVID-19, I wanna spend our thir first 30 minutes today speaking with our senior investment strategist, Roosevelt Bowman, about what we're seeing, our thoughts on the federal response and fiscal stimulus, and actions that we're taking in our portfolio. The second 30 minutes, we will be joined by Daisy Wademan Dowling, CEO of Work Parent and Harvard Business Review contributor, to discuss some key points for successfully working remotely, as everyone else is working remotely and schooling remotely as well. Now, throughout our hour together, we'll be taking questions from a live audience who are joining us via Zoom. Please be patient with us as we navigate this new recording and question process. Daisy, Roosevelt, and I are all coming to you from three distinct locations in Maine, New Jersey, and New York, and our listeners are emailing and texting questions from all around the world. So, Without further ado, I'd like to thank Roosevelt for joining us and start by asking him to give us his take on what's currently going on in the market, the Fed and Congress's responses, and Bernstein's actions. Roosevelt? Sure. Thank you, Emily. And just, I do want to take a moment to thank your brother as well. I've known your brother, obviously, as long as I've known you. We went to high school together and, and what he's doing and some of the medical professionals in my family as well, especially my in-laws, is, is truly remarkable. And and hopefully they remain safe and, and continue to be able to keep up those efforts to protect the rest of us. So I, I agree with your sentiment, just want to say that. But, you know, to start with kind of what we're looking at, right, to sort of set the state of affairs in terms of what we're monitoring and, and trying to observe to see some stabilization, not only in economic activity, but in markets as well. I think there are a couple of key factors that are necessary. Some of them have been fulfilled and we're still waiting on some of the others. So Thinking about it sort of like a checklist, the first has to be sort of what's the, the medical outlook, where are we there, and what can we control, and, and what's still kind of on the horizon. And so in terms of control and what we can do, we've started to see that social distancing that a lot of medical experts have talked about as being effective. And you know, without a doubt, there are a lot of headlines about people of different ages maybe not enacting the social distancing as they should, but we like to focus on the data here. And the data is telling us a better, more optimistic story. If we look at New York and a lot of other major cities, we're seeing social distancing. You know, and we think about it from a driving traffic standpoint. New York traffic, car traffic, is way down compared to last year. That's a positive in our eyes. You know, conversely, internet traffic is way up 
over this time. People are staying home. They are doing what they should be in terms of removing themselves from large crowds and other people. So we're seeing that in New York. We're seeing that in some other major cities as well. In our eyes, that's kind of a positive on the medical front. Now, in terms of the other support that we need, it's really from both the federal government and the Federal Reserve as well. And so we think about government response, I like to think of it as replace. The government, in a temporary way, is looking to replace lost wages, lost revenue for households, consumers, and for companies. And so, you know, can they replace that over some extended period of time? That's not the goal. The goal is to be a bridge, a stopgap, so that these businesses don't have to make these really harsh decisions about laying people off and shutting down their business because they don't have access to money over a short period of time. We started to see some of that in the, the bill that's likely to be passed by all parts of government later this week. And while it may seem kind of slow, again, in my view, they probably left a week on the table and, and could have done this a lot more quickly. When you think about it from a historical point of view, the size of the package and the speed of the passing is much, much faster compared to what we saw in 2008. So again, in terms of the checklist items, the medical outlook, changing behavior, we're starting to see that. We haven't seen the results yet in terms of the flattening of the curve or a change in that trajectory. We're looking for that closely. In terms of the government response, we have the first kind of leg of that. That's a positive. And then lastly, the Federal Reserve, You know, as I mentioned, the government is really focused on replace. The Federal Reserve is really focused on repair. How can they shore up financial markets so that investors, traders that want to buy and sell securities can do so easily and efficiently? And right now, we're starting to see some of the benefits of the actions that they've taken. And you know, overall, the Fed's doing a lot of different things. But if we think about it in one sort of summarize in kind of one phrase, they're essentially becoming a lender of last resort in a lot of these markets. And that's important because to the extent that you have businesses that are able to pay their bills or actually good businesses that are faced with this cash crunch, the Fed stepping in, providing some liquidity and calming markets, we should see that kind of throughout the fixed income markets and, and certainly kind of broader equity sentiment as well. So again, in thinking about our checklist, I wouldn't say that we're all the way there yet, but we're making progress in the right direction. And certainly the moves by the government and the Federal Reserve are, are supportive of better times ahead, but we still do need to see you know, some more progress on the medical front to really see a, a full stabilization in markets. And what about Roosevelt? What are some of the actions that we've been taking our portfolios through all of this? Sure, absolutely. So I think the, you know, the way I like to look at it is what we were doing before the crisis hit, what we've been doing kind of in response, and then some of the parts of the portfolio that we feel can weather the crisis and we don't need to make changes. So if we think about the beginning of the year and where we were at Bernstein in terms of economic forecasts, in terms of traditional market asset forecasts, we were lower than consensus. You know, that's not to say that we predicted the virus, that would be hubris and ridiculous. But the idea is that we expected slower growth, both uh, you know, from a global growth perspective and also in the US. And we also expected, you know, as associated with that, lower traditional asset market returns. And our portfolios were positioned for that. If we think about our fixed income portfolios, the municipal bond uh, strategies that we put in place, we were overweight treasuries compared to municipals. Because in our eyes, you know, typically when you look at history in periods of slower growth, 
and yields falling, treasury bond prices going up, treasuries are, are likely to outperform municipals in those kind of environments. We sold some of our municipals, we bought more treasuries, we're overweight treasuries during the time. That's been a really uh, beneficial trade for us through the first part of this year. If we think about some of the things that we've done in response to the virus, kind of some changes that we've made, I wouldn't say that we've made big dramatic shifts. And the reason for that is that when you have this kind of indiscriminate selling, it doesn't lend itself to one sector being cheap versus another. All of these companies are all faced with the same problem. There's this unexpected shutdown in economic activity, and it's extremely difficult to forecast your revenues and what your, your business outlook's gonna be. So the idea right now that there's kind of a sector versus sector opportunity, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because you've seen this broad selling of risk assets across the board. So the shifts that the portfolio managers have been making have probably been more intra-sector. So for instance, in a couple of our kind of major equity portfolios, we've shifted from larger we've shifted from smaller banks to larger banks. The thinking there being regional banks are reliant basically on the, the, the normal bank model of just net interest margin. You know, basically loaning out at one rate, and then paying a different rate, making money on that spread. So the idea is that larger financial institutions actually have more sources of revenue, not only just the normal commercial banking model, but being able to rely on investment banking revenues. Trading desks have obviously done extremely well during this period that's been so volatile because they're essentially making money on just activity and that spread that investors have to pay when they're buying and selling securities as that's widened out. These, these larger financial institutions are making more money. So you know, it's just an example of kind of what we've done within the sector. If we think about, you know, certainly we've moved away from those companies that rely more on leisure, discretionary income spending, travel. I mean, that, that, you know, certainly that's what you would expect during this time. And I think our portfolio managers have been pretty nimble to get out ahead of it as we saw some of these problems in those areas first emerge they were able to lighten up on those exposures and then uh, you know, position the portfolio in a more defensive manner. But again, I think we, across the board, were a bit more defensive in both fixed income and equities because of our economics forecasts at the beginning of the year. And, you know, lastly, I would say, just thinking about some companies that are well-positioned that we liked before, that we still like, you know, examples of that would be Microsoft. You know, not doesn't seem like the most exciting tech name, but their cloud business, that's a $20 billion business, is growing at 60%. And the idea there was that we had this trend of people working more remotely, storing more information using software rather than people in large hunks of machinery. You know, in our eyes, that's a trend that's only going to continue. You know, along the same lines, a company like Citrix, which is just focused on mobile work, having people being able to connect out of the office Again, that trend that was already in place should only be bolstered by, you know, the, the changes in behavior that we're all forced to make. So I think for, you know, for us, it's been a combination of anticipating slower growth at the beginning of the year, being positioned somewhat defensively, being able to react within sectors, not so much sector versus sector, but within sectors. And then finally, staying with some of the companies that we liked before already that may actually see some benefit from, from folks working more remotely and not being uh, kind of congregated and jammed in, in tight spaces together. Well, we have some questions coming in already on sort of the Fed. 
-hmm. and questions about what can the Fed do in an extended situation while we're already at or near zero rate? Mm -hmm. Sure. So I think, you know, the Fed has somewhat answered that in the last couple of weeks. You know, if you think about the crisis, a lot of what was done during the crisis, and that's kind of when I worked at the New York Fed, you know, July 2009 is when I started there. So as we were kind of emerging from the crisis, but I was there for the European banking crisis as well. You know, at that time, a lot of these facilities were being put together and it was just, how can you be as creative as possible to kind of provide support for the economy that's necessary? This time you have this existing playbook from 2008 that policymakers have been able to go to very quickly. And the idea is that certainly when you're at the zero lower bound, you know, cutting rates is not terribly helpful. I don't think the Fed wants to move into negative rates. But what they can do, again, is be that lender of last resort. So some examples of that are this new credit facility that they put together that is aimed at buying corporate debt. And then not only in the initial market, you know, when companies are first borrowing money, but also you know, entering basically as an investor and a trader on the secondary market and buying bonds at cheap prices uh, for investment-grade companies. They think about extending their asset purchases to municipal bonds as well. That's something really interesting because a lot of it, it's almost like short-term financing really for these states and cities via the Fed. And so what's interesting about that is, you know, again, the same way businesses and households are worried about how am I going to sustain over the next couple of months, cities, municipalities are, are feeling the same way. The Fed being able to buy some of that debt at rather cheap prices with short maturities it works really well because you're able to provide the financing for those areas and the, those, uh, those local cities and governments. And quite frankly, the risk to the Fed is, is really low. And you know, that's a, an investment idea that we like a lot is you know, municipal bonds, even for those that don't want to take interest rate risk and don't want to buy longer bonds. If you think about municipal bonds yielding two and a quarter, two and a half percent at even three month and six month maturities, it's really attractive given that the default rates in municipal bonds are minuscule. And with this Fed support, you know, that probability that may have risen over the past couple of weeks goes down a lot again. So I think you know, the, the Fed's main tools when rates are at zero are being able to buy assets that are distressed, but it's also being able to provide liquidity so that you take some of the stress out of the market. You know, I think another example of that is what the Fed's done in terms of foreign exchange swap lines. And what that means is just that the Federal Reserve is providing dollars in exchange for other currencies to central banks around the world. So those central banks can then lend dollars at very low rates. Because a lot of what we've seen, a lot of the market disruption is that because the dollar is the reserve currency and businesses are often borrowing in dollars all over the world, when dollars become scarce, as we've seen, that can create a lot of funding stress. So the Fed has done that as well to kind of alleviate that crush for dollars, that demand for dollars. And you started to see that work over the past couple of days. So I think when you're near the zero bound, the tools are more unconventional than conventional, but the Fed is, has plenty of firepower. And I think they've shown that over the past couple of weeks. Okay. And what does this all mean for our longer term debt issues? Mm -hmm. Is there a question again about debt and all this spending today and what's that gonna mean down the line? Right. So I think, you know, it's a great question and it's a fair question in terms of, I think, two important parts of that outlook. You know, number one, potential growth. You know, there's been a lot of work done. The European Central Bank did a really great paper recently 
that showed, you know, when you get to a debt level beyond a certain point, I think it was roughly 90%, you know, debt to, to gross domestic product ratio, your growth really stagnates, it gets choked off. So without a doubt, the US is pretty close, almost there. And so the problem is, from a long-term perspective, the more debt you have, the lower your potential growth probably is going to be. Certainly an issue, but I would say that right now, what you're trying to prevent is kind of this permanent loss, these businesses going away that won't come back. So I think it's absolutely a concern, but I would say it's kind of a concern for another day because of the acute nature of this stress. But without a doubt, I, I think that when you move forward, there does need to be a plan for kind of escaping the massive amount of borrowing we're doing. I will say though that fortunately, interest rates are likely to remain very low for a while. So governments globally, especially in developed markets, have the opportunity to pay off this debt, to tighten their belts down the road once we've seen a real economic recovery and be able to service that debt and pay off that debt at rates that are gonna, probably gonna be pretty low for a long time, as opposed to maybe interest rates that are seven, eight percent or something like that that we would have seen 25, 30 years ago. Well, can you talk a little bit about sort of the three different ways that we might be able to get the debt down? Yeah. Right, you talked about it a little bit, but. Sure, yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a couple of different ways. So I mean, I think one certainly is curtailing government spending, you know, that, that without a doubt is, you know, the main one, just not issuing as much debt and reining in. The other would be, quite frankly, higher potential growth, right? So that you were collecting more revenue. Now that, that kind of gets into other kind of uh, parts of government policy, but, you know, at the end of the day, the U.S., you know, that, that's a big demographics issue, right? If you have fewer people, you are not going to grow as well. And so if people in the U.S., if you look at demographic trends, are having fewer children. You know, we just as a government policy, not making a judgment on it, but we are certainly at a point right now where we're letting fewer people in. So it's very simple math. Although this, 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 self, this isolation at home might help our population. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It may, although I don't know about you, I don't want any more children. So, um, but you know, again, if you have fewer people, and I suppose and another way that we could raise revenue, right, is right. taxes. Right, absolutely. I mean, and that—that's yeah. And there, I think there's two parts of that, right? One that is a lot more talked about, and the other that isn't. You know, certainly tax rates. I think it's just really hard math. Tax rates are likely to go up in the future to close. Our, our debt hole. It's just, it's unavoidable, right? I don't know the exact day or exact year, but you know, the math just points to that very clearly. The other part of that equation that I think is really underappreciated, but there's a lot of great economic work and research being done on this is we are ridiculously inefficient in our collection of taxes. And I'm not even talking about loopholes. I'm just talking about the basic collection of taxes uh, that would yield pretty significant. I mean, again, these are all estimates, but pretty significant amounts. So without a doubt, tax rates are likely to go up. And I also think the, the less sort of highlighted part of the tax story is how poor we are at collecting taxes, period. And that's something, you know, I think the combination of those can help us um, get out of our, our debt predicament. But it's not, you know, to be honest, it's not just the US, you know, this is something that you're going to see globally, not only because of this crisis, but that was the unfortunate trend that we had seen already over the past 10 years in developed market countries. Right, because it's really, a, so, the, so we're thinking about, you know, either cutting expenses, increasing revenue, or I guess printing money. 
Would that be one? Uh, yeah, I mean, place <laughs> to get out of debt. Yeah, I mean, technically. So I think what's what's interesting now is that, you know, the concern about printing money has always been, do we have runaway inflation, right? You know, I was speaking with a client the other day that mentioned, boy, we're doing these stopgap measures, these stimulus packages. Are we going to have runaway inflation? And my answer, honestly, at this point is probably not. You know, the policymakers would love, you know, if you talk about the Federal Reserve, my old colleagues, they'd probably love to see some inflation you know, over the next couple of years, because quite frankly, when you're near the zero bound, it's a lot easier to fight inflation than it is to fight deflation and kind of that spiral of prices going down, 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 and consumers hoarding their cash because they're looking for goods to be cheaper in the future. And so they're spending less. Like that's the bad scenario that is much more likely when you're near the zero bound in interest rates than, than runaway inflation. Inflation to the upside is fairly easy to control from a monetary policy standpoint. Okay, now we have a question here around, is there a tiered approach based on how long this situation lasts? You know, many individuals are thinking about their spending based upon sort of like if this lasts, you know, six weeks or two months or two weeks or whatever it is. And so I guess will will Bernstein, will our approach change the longer this lasts or is it the same approach regardless of how long this lasts? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I think, Without a doubt, our approach changes a bit in terms of how long it lasts. And I think about you know, some of the opportunities that we're focused on right now, those would change given different timeframes. So for example, you know, I mentioned municipal bonds being a big opportunity for a lot of our clients, especially those that are sitting in cash that's yielding you know, basically nothing at this point. And you're looking at these municipalities that have extremely low probability of default yielding much more than treasuries, in some case, two, two and a half percent, even at short maturity. So, you know, that's an opportunity that we like now, because at this given time, the medical picture is progressing, but still clearing up. But, you know, if you think about moving that time frame forward, you know, let's take the optimistic scenario where social distancing really does work. We're seeing better liquidity throughout fixed income markets. We're seeing less volatility in equity markets. Then you're saying, you know what, municipal bonds are still probably, that opportunity is probably passed. You know, the municipal bonds probably have a, you know, appreciated in value enough. And you're thinking about equities saying, okay, markets are a bit more stable here. We can at least see the potential end of this. Now is a better time to be more aggressive in terms of risk assets. So I do think the time frame of how long it lasts matters. You know, conversely, if you go to a more kind of bearish scenario where for whatever reason, maybe people aren't taking social distancing as seriously as they have been the past couple of weeks. Maybe there's, maybe we recede in those behaviors and those uh, and good practices that we've seen thus far. Then you know what? It's going to be, let's hold off on risk assets for a little while. It's still too volatile. We're going to stick more with those conservative opportunities like municipal bonds that are probably still going to be attractive in that scenario. Okay, that's helpful. Now here's a question. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to get to the, I think what I think the heart of it is. Put another way, the cause of this recession is unique and the impacts are unique. Can prior recession models accurately predict how this will play out? I would say no, but I, I think the, there's a couple of things there. So when I, whenever I think of models and, you know, done a fair amount of modeling from being at the Fed and just running my own portfolios, 
you know, at, like in my prior role at MetLife when I was running a foreign exchange portfolio, econometric modeling requires a lot of data. And quite frankly, there just haven't been that many recessions. So, you know, when I think about recession modeling, to me, that's probably chair picking points a little bit too much anyway. And so those models are unlikely to be that helpful. So thinking about it in terms of where we are now and looking at the market conditions, even though the origin of the problem is different, I do think these market conditions resemble a bunch of other times that may not necessarily have been recessions, but are these big exogenous shocks that create illiquidity in the market and big sell-offs and risk assets. And there, you end up with a lot more data points, and I think making assumptions makes a lot more sense to me. So again, the origin of the problem being different, but we've seen other periods of market stress that are these big exogenous shocks. And what we found is that generally those recessions tend to be shorter. Again, on average, not saying every time, they tend to be shorter. And these exogenous shocks from the start of them to you know, one year, 18 months later, typically equity markets are up you know, roughly eight, 9%. Now, again, that's on average, not saying that every time that that's going to happen, but the idea is just that regardless of the, of the starting point of the problem or the origin, you can look at a bunch of other times of market stress and you can draw some conclusions. Okay. And I guess we, we talked a little bit about what we're doing for existing portfolios, right? Question and sort of how we're thinking about it. But a question that's coming in is what about for people who currently have some cash? Is there anything mm -hmm. that they should be doing or you know, how are we thinking about that? Absolutely. So I mean I'll kind of split it into two parts. For those that are you know, really slowly moving into investing, don't necessarily want to take too much risk. Yeah, as I mentioned before, I think the municipal bond opportunity is a really good one. You know, if you think about municipal bonds that are even six months to a year out that are yielding kind of two and a half to two and three quarters percent, and you know, that's assuming that you're just getting the interest, the coupon payments, and getting your principal back, right? It's not assuming that there's any kind of compression of municipal bonds towards treasuries, which as markets get better in terms of risk sentiment, as liquidity improves in fixed income markets, you would expect municipal yields to come very close to treasuries and then move through. So the idea is that you do have some potential, you know, the income is attractive and you have some capital appreciation potential as well. So, you know, for those, you know, sort of, I would say risk averse investors that have cash, the municipal bond trade is a really attractive one right now. For those that can take a little bit, you know, are comfortable with more volatility and understand that the health headlines might be uh, somewhat negative over the next couple of weeks, I do think it's a great time to start dollar cost averaging into, into equity strategies. And again, I think it's more a function of risk tolerance rather than it is a sector. You know, spoken to clients, got a lot of calls about, you know, should we just be in certain technology stocks that are focused on people working from home? You know, some of those moves have already been made. And you know, as I mentioned before, the sell-off has really been across the board in risk assets, forget even just equities and sectors. So to me, it makes a lot more sense to say, you know what, I'm going to start moving into equities just as a risk asset and not necessarily try to pinpoint specific sectors. I will say one thing in terms of just styles, when you think about growth versus value, you know, over this time, growth has outperformed over the last number of years. And we've been in a really low interest rate environment. And that's been you know, part of the headwind for value. So you know, going forward, 
you know, in, in our view, interest rates even before this were likely to remain low. They're certainly likely to remain low now. You know, someone who worked at the Fed, this is a pretty dovish Fed. They're unlikely to raise rates anytime soon. So, you know, that does argue, you know, for those that those investors that are more aggressive, I do think it's a good time to start dollar cost averaging in. And, you know, growth might have an advantage over value over this time where interest rates are likely to remain low. And you could really have, you know, hopefully as the recovery takes hold, or at least the recovery is in sight, you could have that bigger move up in equities. You know, growth is likely to, to outpace value during that kind of momentum driven rally as well. Oh, Roosevelt, this has been really fantastic. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I think what's, what's been helpful and what clients have been hearing from us throughout this, and I've been hearing from them, is having come into the year with the right positioning and with the allocation to, to sort of make it through this has been, has been key. And so a lot of clients have been asking, do I need to make wholesale changes to my allocation? And the answer we've been taking care of that were necessary. But the reason we weren't all in stocks last year for many clients was because we know that not every year is going to be a repeat of 2019. And we can right. have years like this. And the planning that you and your team and the Wealth Strategies Group do on a day-to-day -day basis takes that into consideration and, and looks to make sure that the portfolios are, are put together in a way that means we come out of this on the other side stronger than, than before. So yeah, Absolutely. So, so thank you. Now, I know that as someone who has two young children at home and a wife who also <laughs> works and is working from home, we're <laughs> all sharing the same space. And I know that you're anxious to hear what our next speaker, Daisy Wademan Dowling, has to say. But I also know that you have another client that you have to jump on onto. You're not jumping onto the client, you're jumping onto a call with them. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to uh, I'm going to let you go, but thankfully, since we're recording this, you'll be able to to hear all of Daisy's pearls of wisdom, and you'll just have to settle for listening later. Um, no, it's totally fine. Daisy, one of the questions that we were talking about earlier. So, so thank you again, Roosevelt. We yeah, appreciate. Thank you, everyone, and be safe. You as well. Thank you. So now we're joined today by Daisy Wademan Dowling, the CEO of Work Parent and contributor to Harvard Business Review. Daisy, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this is um, great to be able to connect with all of you. Um, it's certainly interesting times and for working parents um, and people who uh, maybe are parents of working parents or who have colleagues who are working parents. Um, I think we're all sort of trying to find our new normal. Um, so just to do a quick introduction as to who I am and how I come at this. Um, having spent 20 years in the human resources field, I've worked with um, employees who have worked from home, who have developed all different kinds of flexibility arrangements um, and made those work. So I've been an observer of this, maybe not in the same pressured type of environment for a long time. Um, I do now coach and counsel exclusively working parents and I've been talking with a lot of them about how they integrate work and home, particularly just in the past couple of weeks. Um, and I'm gonna say upfront right here and right now, I'm a working mom myself. Um, you can see some of my kids' artwork here in the background. There's a remote chance that my small children may interrupt me. Um, I'm gonna say that because I think it's um, just the reality of where we are right now and I'm sure a lot of people can relate. Um, but what I want to do is share 10 top tips, um, things that will help you 
manage yourself, manage your career, um, work more efficiently with other colleagues, um, and find a little bit more sense of calm and normalcy in what can be um, a very, very trying time, has been and will likely continue to be for the next several weeks. If you're a working parent yourself, um, you can use these tricks and techniques um, in your own day-to-day. -day. Um, if you are um, you know, managing working parents or have other working parents around you, um, or people who are um, working in very different situations and environments than they do typically, um, you can also use these tricks to advise them or to provide these suggestions to them. So I know we have a diverse group here um, and you may uh, you know, pluck from this list yourself or give it to others. The first thing, and if you take nothing away from what um, the, you know, everything else I have to share with you, the first thing that I'm going to really recommend that every person on this call think about doing is resetting their goals and expectations. Um, all of us are type A's. All of us are used to trying to get the good grade, to be professional, to do our very, very best. Um, we're not put our feet up and you know take the C minus types. Um, over the past two weeks, my phone has literally been ringing off the hook from current and past clients, very uncomfortable by the situation they have been thrust into. And I think what's causing that discomfort, in addition to, to just some of the practicalities, which we'll address, is the sense that they're working somehow less than they used to. Three weeks ago, four weeks ago, maybe you went into a, you know, your professional office space, you were dressed in a nice suit. It was unthinkable that you wouldn't be focused for those 10 hours. You weren't going to be interrupted by small kids. Um, you could be the top of your game. Now maybe you're working in a different environment, a borrowed space. Um, you feel like you might be compromising your standards in some way, and that's very, very uncomfortable. So the first thing that I recommend to all of the people I'm coaching and counseling and to everybody on this call is to think about resetting your goals and expectations. That doesn't mean reducing your expectations, but tapering them. Um, and really thinking about business continuity. What do I have to get done? What does my team and organization need to get done? And then the health and safety of your family. Everything else beyond that or how you achieve that um, should be seen and treated as flexible right now. So give yourself a little bit of a break. Now, Daisy, can I ask a question around yeah. that? Because Please. I know that you spend a lot of time also working with big companies and helping yeah. them figure out sort of how to best serve their their workforce. Yes. What, how, how, what has their reaction been to that, right? That sort of no, like don't put the pressure on yourself. Don't, right, just get done what needs to get done when they're I, used to having employees that are sort of 10 hours in the office, not, not being interrupted. Yes, I think the past couple of weeks has been a jolt and it's been a, um, a cultural shift. We'll see if that cultural shift sticks. But what I have seen are managers, because things are business critical right now, and depending on your business, that can look very different. Um, but managers, senior leaders really focused on what are the outcomes here? So are people delivering the work that they need to, not the details of how they are delivering that work? Um, several of the clients I have literally had nobody can work remotely policies or effective policies in place before. Um, they've never had somebody dial in, be remote, do a video conference. That just has been um, you know, unthinkable. And those organizations have now moved fully to work from home. Um, is it an adjustment? Absolutely. But again, what I think people are really focused on are dollars and cents outcomes, practical outcomes, and thinking about their planning for the next several weeks. 
So it is an adjustment. It's not easy for anybody, but I think everybody will adapt. Okay, thank you. Um, the, the second and third pieces of advice that I have, which are really linked, are um, two to two when you are working remotely, um, particularly if you're in a new physical space, a borrowed physical space, or if you're sharing it with many different people and potentially with kids, um, your own, other kids, um, to have a defined physical space in which you're working to set up a regular office. Um, that might be a corner of your kitchen counter. It might be you know, moving from one side of your bedroom to the other side of your bedroom in the morning. Whatever it is, it might be very limited and modest. But having that physical space puts you in the mentality that you are usually, which is showing up and being able to deliver your best at work. Very closely related to that, try and keep as much as you can certain routines and rituals around going to work. That might be putting on a certain uh, type of clothes. It might be making that first phone call to a colleague every morning. Um, you know, Whatever the things that for you mark, I am starting my day and I'm about to deliver great performance, um, that's what you should be doing. So think about that physical space and those routines and rituals. Um, I know a lot of people are doing uh, extra reading right now. We have a lot more time to be uh, reading and maybe catching up on our Netflix queue um, for some of us. Uh, there's a terrific book that one of my um, HBR collaborators wrote a couple of years ago called Psyched Up, which is essentially about the power of pre-game rituals, how to get yourself ready and into the mentality to deliver great performance. So the tennis player who bounces the ball before serving, um, you know, the doctor who puts on a white coat before seeing patients, um, and he examines and makes suggestions about how all of us can find some of those small techniques to help us raise our game even when we're, we are in adverse circumstances. It's a terrific read. Um, can you say the name again? It's Psyched Up by Daniel McGinn. Thank you. Uh, by HBR Press. Uh, number four is just to expect your schedule to change. Um, most of the working parents who I have been interviewing and speaking with right now um, are working in very different hourly environments than they have before. And the rule there is do what works. That might mean getting up extraordinarily early in the morning to put in two or three hours of work before your children get up. It might mean taking 90 minute shifts with your partner or with another caregiver so that you can toggle back and forth and get your work done and also take care of your kids. But just expect there to be some flux. So expect things to be broken up in a different way. Um, number five is to communicate with your manager and to communicate with your team, um, whatever that looks like, or you know, with investors, whoever's important to you. There's a very, very powerful phenomenon. When people are under pressure, we attend to what's most immediately important in front of us. What we often forget to do or the mistake that we often make is that we think that people who are working with us, who typically know us very well, who get to see us, we assume that they are clairvoyant, right? That they know exactly what we're dealing with. So if you're a working parent, your manager may or may not know the age or remember the age of your kids, the type of care they need, what that might mean you're structuring your day to work around. Um, your team may or may not be communicating with you about some of their needs. That doesn't mean that you have to have a silver bullet or to be able to solve them, but I urge people to prioritize that communication. But along those same lines or along those communicative lines, number five is to communicate with your colleagues. When you're walking around an office, when you're physically in an office space, there's an enormous amount of communication that just happens by the by. You, you, walk, somebody, you know, walk by somebody in the hallway, 
um, you get a quick update, you see somebody in line at Starbucks, um, you even observe people's body language when you're in a meeting. We're really communicating all the time. When you're working remotely, you're deprived of that and you're also depriving others. So think about communicating with team, colleagues, people reporting to you, clients, whoever it is, think about reaching out to them when you don't quote unquote need to. So maybe you don't have a scheduled call. Maybe you don't have to send your, you know, it's not the day that you send your weekly update on a, on a project or an, an important task. Nonetheless, lift the phone, get on Zoom, try and have those touch points. In other words, recreate the kind of communication you have in the office. And as you do that, think about what impression you are leaving. Um, think about how your brand is gonna be communicated, um, your professional brand. One of the exercises I often give to people that I'm coaching is to think about five adjectives that they would want other people to use to describe them. Maybe that's calm, judicious, thoughtful, efficient. You fill in the blanks. We'll all have different things that we want to be known as, but particularly right now when everybody is under pressure, you want to be known as that thing also. So think about how that's coming across in your communications. Moving to the home front, um, just a couple of tips about um, having- Katie, can I ask a quick question about the yes. sort of managing from afar and communicating your brand. What about for those who are you know, managing people and trying to figure out who to give promotions to or who to keep on the payroll, sorry, <laughs> but like, or, yeah. you know, or on the other side, right? Those who are you know, employees and wanna make sure that they continue to sort of grow and get ahead. You know, I know a lot of people come into the year and I know you said to sort of reset your goals and expectations. Yes. But like if your goal is, you know, you want to make sure that you get that promotion, right? Yes. Or you get, you know, recognition or, you know, your goal is to make sure that you mentor and bring up so many people or whatever it is, right? How do you as a business owner or as an employee how do you sort of succeed in that in this environment? Yes, so I think the, the catchphrase that I want people to grab onto there is continued contribution. So in normal course, um, we're used to thinking about performance, um, what you're able to do and achieve. The, the new metric that each of us should think of ourselves as being accountable for and the new metric that we're gonna hold other people accountable for um, is being able to sustain maybe not exactly that performance, but to sustain most of that performance through a very difficult time. So if you have a team and you're trying to mentor certain people within that team uh, through this crisis, towards job continuity, even towards their own advancement, the, the sort of hard facts advice that I would give to them would be to try and keep their cool and keep doing their job. That means it's you know okay to be nervous, concerned, worried, et cetera. But back to the point about brand, you want to make certain that it looks like and that you're telegraphing to other people that you are sticking to your knitting, that you are doing your work, that you are being a, an open and collaborative person with others, um, that you remain in contact, and that you were focused on that business continuity, that you have your sights on the right thing. I think what people tend to do often in, the, in situations like these, and having seen this through 9-11, through the Great Recession, um, through crises even before that, is that um, people um, will often become so distracted by the crisis that it begins to impede their performance. So continuity is key. So whether it's for your, yourself or for somebody who you're trying to mentor through this, I think that's what I would really focus on right now.
Okay, thank you. Um, just on the home front and think about, thinking about keeping kids busy, right? Because there's two parts to this equation um, and thinking about how uh, you can manage, um, you know, without going, I think a lot of people are a little bit stressed and strained right now with the kids around uh, and also doing their jobs. Um, the, the, um, the next piece of advice I have is to keep the kids as busy as you possibly can. Um, that certainly depends on their ages. Um, but the more that you can give kids tasks, um, they may or may not be as busy as usual in school right now. Um, but if you can get the kids, um, you know, doing certain activities, give them assignments, have them do housework, have them take care of the pet. Uh, one of the things that um, I've done this week is take the great big bag of coins that I've collected over uh, the past, you know, years when I throw change down on my nightstand at the end of the day. And I've had my kids count all those coins um, with a promise that they can keep some of the money, but it's educational for kids their age. And it took them a really, really long time. So get them exercising. Um, there's a lot of great videos on right now um, of special activities you can do with your kids at all different ages. So just make certain that they're, the kids are as engaged as possible. Um, number eight, think about using um, a virtual babysitter. Um, babysitters, uh, caregivers are usually in person. Um, most of us or many of us have had our care arrangements interrupted in the past several weeks. Um, that is difficult and there's no two ways around it. But one of the things that you can do is think about using friends, family, et cetera, as virtual caregivers. So getting a relative, getting a typical caregiver, um, they may not be able to take a whole eight hour day, but maybe they can get on um, a video call with your child and tell a story, uh, read a story, um, have a conversation with an older child, something to distract them. In other words, providing some care from afar. Um, number nine is just, in the reality that we're all dealing with, with taking care of kids and having you know, the jobs that we need to do, think about working in shorter sprints. So breaking things up, um, you know, we're all distracted, we're all a little bit um, you know, uh, focused on what's going on, even if we try and block that out and focus on our work. Um, it's fine to take things in you know, 20 minute sprints, 25 minute sprints, instead of sitting down and saying, I'm gonna do this or that task for the next five hours. And then the final piece of advice, um, which I think many people are giving right now and it bears repeating, is to think about self-care and other care. Um, you know, now the, the term self-care can be a little bit overused, but um, it's a really, really important and powerful idea, which is to do what will help you keep your battery and energy up over the next several weeks, whatever that is, exercising, eating well, uh, reading, distracting yourself in some way, uh, but finding healthy ways to keep yourself top of game. Uh, and one of the great ways to do that is by helping other people reach out to a neighbor, um, text a friend who may be in a difficult time. In other words, do things that give you some power and sense of control over what can be a very disconcerting time. So those are, those are some of the, the standard tips. Um, I would give them to many, many or most of them to people in times that don't look like the ones we're going through, but they're particularly important and powerful right now. And are you finding that right now, I know that you said that this is sort of a, a new time for, for everybody, right? Yes. And that, you know, many companies, this is even their first time letting anybody work, work remotely. Yes. What are you hearing from, like, what questions are companies asking you about, about navigating this? Yeah. The, the, que the core question that most companies are coming to me and a, a lot of, um, current, former, past, and brand new clients are now coming and saying, what do we do? We have people working remotely. It's not a skill set we're used to. 
Um, the core question or sort of you know, two related questions perhaps are, um, how do people do this? Just what, what does the basic blocking and tackling look like? Because we've all grown up as professionals. We know what it looks like to go into an office, to perform that way. What, what are sort of the new, not rules that we should be providing people, but the new guidelines. So they have some sense of what they're quote unquote supposed to be doing. The second thing is quite frankly, how do we make people feel better about this? How do we energize our population? How do we motivate our workforce? I think there's a really, really powerful concern now that managers, senior leaders, CEOs, board members, et cetera, have that, um, that a lot of um, employees throughout organizations, whatever their personal circumstances, are um, demoralized, um, concerned, distracted, et cetera. Um, and that uh, could be uh, really a drag on, um, on themselves, on their own health, on their own uh, mental health, but also on productivity, on the organization. And so the, the core question is, how do, we, how do we normalize this? And how do we get people comfortable with it? And how do we get them back into their game? Okay. Now, here's a question that came through, which I'll add my own twist to in a moment. Please. But somebody saying their 20-year-old um, their son walked through the room in his boxer shorts while they were on Zoom. <laughs> and yeah. they weren't sure if they're supposed to just ignore that or address it. And I guess from my perspective, right? little kids coming in and, you know, my kids will come in and sort of sit on my lap during it. Do you, do you sort of embrace that? Do you acknowledge it? Do you ignore it? Do you, you know, push them out of the room? Like, what's the best way when you do get an unexpected, I know the ideal is you keep them out, yes. right? But like, you know, 20 year old kid wakes up in the morning, goes to get breakfast, you know, and it's 10 o'clock. cereal and <laughs> Right, yeah, like exactly. boxer shorts or you know, yeah. little kids, you know, don't necessarily listen. You know, these things happen. And what's the best way to handle when they happen? Yeah. So there's two things here. The first is um, is to preempt, right? So if you've got a 20-year-old who you know is going to be waking up late and maybe wandering through the background, or if you have a three-year-old who might be, you know, making noise in the background, the, the first thing to do, I think, when you get on a call is if you are reasonably concerned that there's um, some likelihood of that happening, to just say up front, hey, you know, I've got kids in the background. I mean, I, I did it at the beginning of this call as a way of sort of giving everybody the heads up. I think we'll be private, but we may not be. So giving people that heads up, that basically takes the sting or the surprise out of it. Um, if it does happen, it becomes a, a human moment, something that's a shared chuckle, sort of a, I told you so, but now let's focus back on what we were talking about, as opposed to a big surprise and, you know, getting, leaving you red-faced and flustered. If you do find yourself red-faced and flustered, um, I want you just to remember, it's not really awkward unless you make it awkward. So yeah, there was a great video maybe a year or a year and a half ago about a, um, a TV commentator whose um, very small child broke in in the background and then another child broke in in the background and he was desperately pretending that all of this wasn't happening and sort of shoving his kid out of the way with one hand and then his partner or spouse came in to try and get the kids. And all of it was, First of all, it, was, it went viral because it was relatable and also because it was funny, but it was funny because he was pretending it didn't happen. Right now, we're in an environment where you have to address it. So if you do get interrupted, just say, you know, excuse me, give me, you know, five seconds, let me attend to my child, and then I'll, you know, then I'll come back at this. And remember, everybody's in the same boat. Right, so so many people are going through this. Now, what about for those who are working with somebody where they don't, or they're in a, in a shared space with somebody who's like a really loud talker, right? Or, 
you know, we have people whose kids are doing homeschooling or, you know, their spouse is there or a roommate or they've decided to hunker down together, right? right. Somebody's asking, you know, they've got somebody who's talking really loudly. <laughs> and, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that knowing that like you can't go home at the end of the day, right? You're not going to be away from them. And so maybe pressing them to the side, like, how do you, how do you handle that? Yeah, I, I, again, it's, um, this is where I think we have to let some of our, um, you know, some of our sense of how things should normally operate go a bit. Um, for that, I would say um, trying to schedule um, and trying to prioritize, um, you know, if you do, if you are working with people um, who, you know, big people or small people who are noisy uh, and you have a particularly important phone call asking for quiet just during that time, um, you know, trying to figure out how to make best use of technology, um, uh, you know, headphones, um, any kind of technological isolation you can get. Maybe it's better to be on a phone call rather than on a video call or a Zoom, depending on your circumstances. So play it by ear and do your best. Um, I think we're all going to have to learn how to uh, work with a little bit more interruption now. Okay. And for, for those couples that are both working at home with kids, you know, what about when one is pulling, you know, if there's a question here saying that, um, that the husband is pull, pulling more than his fair share, share of the work, right? He feels like he's doing a lot more. Oh, I hope this isn't Charlie. Well, I know it's not Charlie sending it. <laughs> 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 like he's doing a lot more than his share of the work. And you know, how does, he's asking, how does he get his, his spouse, his wife to engage more in this? Right. So I would recommend if, if you are part of a dual career couple, um, you have kids at home, the kids maybe are you know, in school and you're trying to manage homeschooling at the same time. It's an extraordinarily difficult task. Um, I'm dealing with this myself. I recommend having um, a regular check-in and meeting with your spouse where you in fairly close detail go over the schedule. Um, if you have silent assumptions about who should be doing this or simply fall into patterns of doing that, um, almost inevitably, those things are going to feel um, haphazard, unfair, um, tilted. They won't be satisfying to both of you. Back to the point about communications, now's the time to, whether it's on a weekly basis or maybe even nightly now, to look at the schedules the next day and say, I have an important call now. I need you to take the kids outside at this point. Um, you know, here's housework that needs to be done. Here's uh, the school assignment. Um, you know, I'm going to have to have quiet in order to meet this deadline. Um, it's going to be a delicate dance, but without walking through that, I think um, there's a, a real recipe for frustration and stress. Fantastic. Good. Okay. So I think that that takes us through our questions. And I really, Daisy, I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time and joining us today. You know, I know that I've already, in listening to you, thought about, you know, really how to think about my expectations and how to work with my colleagues, especially those who I'm trying to bring up over the course of the next year, right? But what does that look like from afar? So that's really helpful. I also know, you know, we've been having family meetings around sort of schedule for the day, but that's really good idea. on the kids' schedule. And I like the idea that Charlie and I should be having our own conversations and our own sort of scheduling about who does what at what time, right? We've been doing more like, okay, this is outdoor time, this is playtime, this is you know, breakfast, lunch, whatever it is, we've been yeah. doing those schedules. But I think that Charlie and I having our own sort of teamwork schedule, the two of us, sounds like it could make a lot of sense. Um, so really, thank you. Thank you My so pleasure. much. I know you've got your two kids and you're working yes. husband 
there. <laughs> and, I sure do. In close quarters, yes. Yes, in close quarters. So, so we really appreciate it. Now, if anybody listening has any follow-up questions or would like to connect with me, Daisy, or Roosevelt, you can email me at emily.grace at bernstein.com. Thank you and stay well.